I'm a planner. Some of you don't know me well, but it's a, it's a thing. I've been trying to get better, but I can't help it. I get freaked out if I don't kind of know where I'm going in terms of preaching. I say that to say that the text for this morning and the subject matter for this morning was selected months ago. And um, I didn't realize that preaching a psalm of lament would actually entail going through actual lament. Please continue to pray for Laura, for Kelsey, for Robert, not only in the days that follow, but in the weeks, in the months, in the years as well. The reason that I can stand here and open God's word and declare his word is because of what's true. Jesus came to rescue and restore and redeem. And though there is this prolonged season of asking with the, with the words of the psalmist, how long, O Lord, it will not always be that way. There will finally and fully come a day when all sad things are made untrue. But God in his mercy and his grace does not look at us and say, so cheer up, Christian. But he gives us words. Brutal, vulnerable, honest, painful words to say when our hearts say, yeah, I know that day is coming, but it hasn't come yet. So let me invite you to turn to Psalm 3. Let me invite you to stand. Let's hear the words of David. As this is a Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Hear these words. O Lord. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. This is God's word. It's absolutely true and it is given to us to stay in love 
So let's pray and ask God for help. Most kind and gracious and loving God. You who are neither aloof nor asleep, but in fact draw near to the brokenhearted. Help us. We don't know what to do with our lament and with our tears. But you, in fact, use our grief and use our tears and use our sadness to mold us and shape us after the image of the one who sought us and saved us. So help us by your spirit this day, for Jesus' sake and in his name, amen. Be seated, if you would. Um, I want to unfold something that I touched on last week, but has been really kicking around in my head a lot over the last several weeks. And that is, I think a lot of us, if we're really honest, a lot of us are just barely holding it together under the surface. A lot of our days and a lot of our lives are marked by all sorts of things. For some, it could be loneliness. For some, it could be grief. For some, it could be shame. For some, it could be fear. It could be the circumstances around us or the choices made by us, or the things done to us. But one thing that most of us have in common is that when we start talking about these things, especially if we walk in Jesus' name, right? If we're a Christian, if we're someone who, who, who has bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus as the only source of our help and our hope and our blessing, and we, and we feel this pervasive guilt that our lives should be marked by the joy of the Lord, and so we feel like if we acknowledge the sad stuff or if we acknowledge the scary stuff, it's somehow taking away from the blessing that we've been given as Christians. Have you experienced this? Because somehow along the way, we've begun to think that it, I can either be happy or I can lament, but I can't be both at the same time. Or that somehow the joy that I experience as a Christian is supposed to nullify or minimize or undo all of the sad things. 
And so then we feel guilty then too, because we don't know what to do with the sad things, and we don't know what to do with the scary things, and we feel guilty, and we feel like we're less of a Christian, because we've been given all of these blessings and all of these great gifts from God, and yet somehow bad stuff happens, and we don't know what to do with it, but we feel like if we admit it or talk about it, we're less than Christians. Have you ever experienced that? And the conversation that I have been having with a lot of people, and really it's because it's the conversation happening in my own heart, is that the Christian life is not this binary switch of it's either joy or it's sorrow. It is actually a complicated, multifaceted tapestry where we have real things that have happened to us that have given us profound joy. And there are real things that have happened to us that have also given us profound grief and sorrow. Sometimes in the same day. And what do you do with that? Do you realize, friends, that God wants all of it? You're not less than a Christian because you've got scary stuff and sad stuff that happens to you. Yes, the joy of the Lord is ultimately what sustains you. It's what gives you the voice and the ability to pray like David prayed and said, God, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of scary and bad stuff happening right now. And it's okay to admit it to one another because the first conversation I've been having is that a lot of people are barely holding it together under the surface. And the second conversation that I've been having, closely related to the first, is that none of us really feel like we have someone that we can talk to about it. Because there's a deep fear that if we were known, we wouldn't be liked very much, much less loved. And that the only reason that we're really loved right now is because people don't really know us. And that's a pretty scary place to be, too. So I want to invite you to talk about an uncomfortable thing that many of us just are, we, we, we barely have the training wheels on. See, this summer, Jen and I have invested money in private swimming lessons for our kids. And that's not because I believe that my kids are ultimately going to be Olympic caliber athletes, though if you want to, Nate, do it. That's cool. Really, at the end of the day, I just need my kids to know if they get in water over their head, I need muscle memory to take over so that they can get horizontal in the pool rather than vertical and get over towards an edge. To do that requires what? Lessons, training, practice, right? Here's what I want to contend with you this morning. The skill of praying our troubles, the skill of praying our troubles or praying our fears or praying our grief is one that many of us, I bet, don't really practice a whole lot. Now, that's not, to, that's not to make you feel bad. That's simply to say that for most of us, all we can do when we are in trouble 
sometimes is to barely get a word out. Now, I'm not saying that that's bad. I've been there a lot. But we think, when we think of the essential forms of prayer, right? When the Bible teaches us about prayer and the essential forms of prayer, we think of prayers like uh, adoration and its close cousin, thanksgiving. We think of prayers of confession, prayers of repentance, like we did this morning. And we think of prayers of supplication, like James offered this morning in a pastoral or an intercessory prayer. But really, when we think about uh, praying our suffering, um, it's not a different form of prayer that parallels these. Praising, petitioning, and repenting in the midst of suffering is so critical for spiritual growth and survival that we really should consider it a subject of its own. It's like being in water over your head. I don't want you to drown. I want you to know basic life-saving skills. And that comes out of the conviction that prayer is not a nice add-on to our lives, but an essential component of our lives, and that we actually need what only God can provide, especially so when the weight of life and the weight of grief and the weight of sadness and the weight of our fears seem like they're going to pull us under. Most of us, if we're honest, just stop praying when we're suffering. But one of the things that the Psalms of Lament teach us is that rather than stopping praying when we're suffering, it is the time when we need to pray the most. You see, if you're in the deep end and the water and the bottom's gone out below you, that's not the time to stop swimming. That's the time to start swimming like your life depended on it. So I want to give some consideration to David's words this morning. This morning, the first place I want you to look is in the first two verses of this psalm. I want you to see that the source of David's fears are his troubles. Now, this is the first, if you look in the book of the Psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 really are the gateway to understanding all 150 Psalms. Psalm 3 is the first Psalm that we have in the book of the Psalms that has a subheading. And I read it this morning intentionally because I want you to see where it locates in the scriptures. In 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 18, you read history about David's life and what was happening there. What was happening in David's life, we find the story of David's son, Absalom, who was leading a coup to overthrow David as king and kill him. So we look at the first two verses of this psalm and we see the two ways that David was being opposed. The first way that David was being opposed was there was an attack, right? Verse one says, how many are my foes? And down in verse six, you see David clarifying that many thousands of people were trying to attack him. The second thing that we see is it's not just an attack, but it's also accusations. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, he says, many are saying, of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now remember, 
David, the king of Israel, is the anointed one, right? He has been put on his throne by God himself, the anointed one, the king of Israel. And David is seeing now there are accusations that are coming likely from God's people saying, look at everything that you did with Bathsheba, with the killing of Uriah, with abandoning your army. What makes you think after doing all of these things that God will somehow rise up now and save you? You see, everyone, there is actually no hope in following this one that you call king. Basically, it's a, it's a vote of no confidence. It's, it's look at all the terrible things he's done. God has likely abandoned him. At first glance, I doubt that many of us can identify with exact correlation with with what David's experiencing. If by chance someone in here has been the ruler of a a country and overthrown, I'd like to talk to you later because there's some things you didn't tell me in your membership interview. So I don't think that we can identify with David in a one-to-one way in those terms. But I do think that we can identify with David um, in the two ways that David was attacked, right? There was an external attack and an internal attack. I think a lot of us can identify with this. First of all, the external attack would be akin to anything in life's circumstances that are surprising and unexpected, right? It could be as simple as running late for work again and having your boss sit you down and talk about how punctuality is a core value of the company. It could be something more severe such as losing a job, a financial hardship that you weren't expecting, a a medical diagnosis that came out of nowhere that seems to catch you off guard, that phone call that comes from your kids at the wrong time of the night or the morning to say that there's been trouble. Or it could be as severe as uh, the death of a loved one. It could be as severe as um, your entire world just seeming to come unglued at the seams, right? Those are the external things that happen to us. But not only are there the external things, those attacks that happen, there's also the internal things that happen as well. There are the accusations that come. Now, like I said, we don't have people around us pointing and saying, you were once God's, uh, God's beloved king and now you're not. But we do have an accuser. We have Satan. We have God's enemy that would sit there and whisper and would yell and would speak accusation to us that would sound something like this. The external attacks are trying to crush us, but the internal accusations, Satan will cause us to feel guilt and shame, disproportionate to our circumstances warrant. Satan will tempt us to hold ourselves to impossible standards and then we'll feel crushed when we can't meet our own standards. 
But in every, in every way possible, the enemy of God is attacking us with this notion, right? The enemy of God is attacking us with the, with the fear that God is not really for us. That God has stopped answering prayer. God is not really for you. God has abandoned you in your time of need. You see, those, those are the ones that are the accusations that come. And the things that keep you awake at night. And honestly, it's the reason why when we start to feel like we're drowning in the midst of our, of our circumstances that we don't pray. Why don't we pray? It's not that we don't know how. We feel like, what's the point? Because God has stopped listening. So we are being told. If you've ever been to the Disney parks, you know that there's a lot of things that happen behind the surface every day that allow the parks to function. One of the more profound ones that I bet most of you have never experienced is the protocol that goes into place if a child ever becomes separated from their parents. Disney has a protocol. I won't get into all the specifics of it, but it goes like this. As soon as you go and and notify a cast member that you have lost a child, Whatever their job was is no longer their job. Their job is now you. They make a phone call. They notify people in the last area the child was seen. Everybody then has one job, find the child. And their job, they will tell you over and over and over again, is that we've done this before. We know what we're doing. Your child is safe. We'll find them. When the child is found, they're taken to a special place right near the first aid center where there are movies and video games to make sure that parent and child are reunited. Why do they keep telling you it's going to be okay because everything in you is screaming at that moment that it is not okay that you will not see nor find your child again they are trained for this our initial instinct is to is to react rather than to respond panic rather than process And so this is what happens, right? When when unexpected circumstances come into our life, when unexpected tragedy, when unexpected pain, when unexpected things cause us to fear and in that moment lose sight of reality, what the enemy of God would say is, now you should panic because you're you're really in it this time. But instead what God says is breathe. Trust me. Pray. David named the things that were causing him to panic. And God is not ashamed if you come before him and say, God, these things are causing me to panic. And it is not as if you are supposed to somehow magically pull it all together. 
And if it's the same thing that caused you to panic yesterday as causes you to panic today, it is not as if God is saying, how have you not learned your lesson yet? The psalm moves on and we see that God answers David. Verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Now, most of us, when we think about shields, we don't think of uh, what David is talking about. We think about a little shield that would be used in hand-to-hand combat where you kind of put it here, you can block a headshot, you can put it here, you can block a leg shot. Now, the type of shield that David's talking about is the shield the size of a door, right? It's the type of shield that would be used on a full frontal assault of an army moving towards a stronghold. You can do what you want, but you're not penetrating that shield. So what David is saying here is not that there's never going to be calamity, right? And I'm sorry if someone has told you that as a Christian, there's never going to be calamity in your life. And I'm really sorry if someone has made you feel bad because you were thrown off by the fact that there's calamity in your life. What David is not saying here is that there's not going to be calamity, If you look at history, that just doesn't compute. True Christians, true bona fide Christians have suffered mightily because of their faith. It doesn't mean that God will prevent anything from ever hurting us. What it does mean is that any pain that does get through is still part of the larger, more comprehensive defense strategy of God for us. Even though there is pain in our lives, even though there, is, there, is, um, there are blows that feel like they're striking us to our very core, there is still the promise of Scripture that nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean a breaching or a failure of God's defenses. Because if we read this in the context of Romans 8, 28, that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, we can rest assured that even attacks that hurt are not indicators that God has abandoned us. But if we feel like the first indicator of pain is really an indicator that God has left us, we're going to grow angry and disillusioned at God. See, what's happening is, is, is if, if we do suffer, if we are wounded, God is ultimately still shielding us from the intentions of all his enemies, of all our enemies, and from Satan himself. Look at the second part of verse 3. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. Now, I don't want you to miss this. What does this phrase, the lifter, my glory, the lifter of my head, mean? Um, In effect, what it means is that there are, uh, David has realized 
that God is the ultimate source of happiness and satisfaction, right? There are other things that can become glories, little g, but David has realized that it is God who is the supreme source of glory. Now listen, sometimes in the midst of our struggles and in the midst of our grief, one of the things that God does as he's bringing us through those times of grief is he shows us where we have disordered desires, right? Where we have taken things that are good things that are, that are given to us as gifts and we've made those things ultimate things. Now, that doesn't mean that that's always the case. It doesn't mean that it's always the case. But sometimes, in some instances, it is possible that a good thing, be it our job, be it our reputation, be it our family, be it our status, be it whatever it may be, has become in our own hearts and in our own lives an ultimate thing, and the loss of that is disproportionate to what it really should be. David says here, but you, God, you are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Do you know how I can tell when someone is really battling with shame? Someone is really battling with shame. See, the guilt says, I did a wrong thing. Shame says, I am the wrong thing. Guilt says I made a mistake. Shame says I am the mistake. Shame is relational. It's a downcast eye. God is the lifter of David's head. He's the one to remove shame. He's the one to restore his rightful place as God alone being the source of glory. One of the things that we know because of the gospel, because of the good news, because of Jesus, is that God himself became our shield for us. Jesus took the blows that we deserve. God won't forsake us because Jesus was forsaken so that we might be forgiven. Do you understand, friends? Do you understand the good news of the gospel that because of Jesus, God has taken the blows that you deserved. God has forsaken his son so that you might be found and forgiven. And in Jesus, we have received his glory and are now radiant in the Father's eyes. In this and only in this do the thousands of accusations that would come from within in the midst of our tears and in the midst of our anguish and in the midst of our grief and in the midst of our sorrow that would whisper and scream and shout that God has abandoned you and God has forgotten you and if God really loved you, he wouldn't have let this happen to you. All of those things become mute in the reality of the gospel of Jesus that Jesus took your blows so that you might be forgiven and Jesus was abandoned and forsaken so that you might be found and forgiven. Friends, it is only that prayer, it is only that reality 
swimming hard against the undercurrent that would seek to pull us under that we can finally find our refuge and safety and strength when we are realizing that it is not our grip of God that matters, but his grip of us. Because it is in that that David says he lays down and he rests. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and I slept. I lay down and I slept. Those of you that have struggled with sleepless nights know what a precious gift sleep is. Those of you that wake up at three o'clock in the morning with the greatest hits of all the would-haves, could-haves, and should-haves know what a blessing it is to wake up refreshed and renewed. I'm not saying that sleep magically returns. But again, what David ultimately rested in was that in God's hands, he is secure. I lay down and I slept and I woke again for the Lord sustained me. And this last point I want you to see is that community is the antithesis of fear is going to take a little bit of explaining. After all, David seems to have had his situation resolved. He lay down and he slept. What more is there to talk about? Now remember, we said that this is when David was seeing a coup unfold. Absalom was going to try and take the throne. David knew that Absalom would make a terrible king. So now, now that God has brought him to a place of restored rest and restored peace, what is David going to do about it? He's going to now move fully into community. He's going to move fully into community. Now you say, how in the world do you see that? Let me ask you this. What is the opposite of love? Those of you that whispered hate are incorrect. I love you, but you're incorrect. Because you see, love is not a feeling. Love is an action, right? If fear causes us to collapse in on ourselves, love propels us to move out. In 1 John, the apostle writes, perfect love casts out what? Fear. Because David has been um, brought to a place where he is both assured of God's love and his fears have been quelled, that doesn't mean that he continues his life in isolation. It now means that he calls out, okay, God, I understand that you're on the throne and that you're with me. Now, God, rise up and conquer yours and my enemies. Verse 7, arise, O Lord, 
Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. If you want to know how to get into the psalms that are imprecatory psalms. Yes, it's a big word. Yes, I'll spell it for you later if you want. You can go back and listen to the sermon I did some years ago on Psalm 137. For now... The only way for us to take our eyes off of ourselves is to put our eyes on Jesus and to love the things that Jesus says is lovely. Do you know what Jesus says is lovely? Everyone else. Everyone else. You see, it's when we have been, it's when we have been conquered by the never-stopping, never-failing unbreakable, always and forever love of Jesus that we are able to, to move towards others in community. It's how I can really tell when the work of God is at work in the lives of people when they stop withdrawing from God's people and are able to instead move towards God's people. That the gospel's really at work in them. Now look, it does not necessarily mean that all of David's troubles have gone, right? David has experienced the, the assurance of the promises of God even in the midst of his trouble. It is not that God removed his trouble. It's that God did not remove from David his presence. Do you understand that in fact in this life we may never fully understand, be able to process, be able to make heads or tails of why troubles have happened, nor is it any assurance that there will in fact be no troubles in our lives. It is why Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The indication that God loves you is not that your life is free from trouble. The indication that God loves you is that he gave his son to rescue you from the only thing that could actually truly ever kill you, sin and death. And so this is where the vital discipline of, of praying our difficulties and our laments comes into play. This is where we need community around us, both to lend strength and voice, not to fix our cries, but to help us amplify our cries. Because you cry, it doesn't mean your faith is broken. If you cry out to the Lord, it's not a defect in your faith. It's actually a feature that you know your cries do not fall on deaf ears, nor do your cries simply go into the ether to disappear, but they are heard by your Father who loves you and cares for you and hears you and will advocate for you. Praying not only involves God shield me, but also that God would redeem the hardships and sufferings of this world, ultimately in Jesus, but hopefully in our lives. Those of you that have experienced 
suffering and have experienced lament know more ably how to come alongside of others who are grieving and suffering and crying out and lamenting, to learn how to walk alongside of one another, to bear one another's burdens, to listen well and lament alongside. These are vital aspects of being in community together. Here's the thing. We come to places of fear. But we hold on to this fact that when disorienting times of sadness and grief come into our lives, that these are not the times when God is most distant, but these are in fact the times that God is most near. Do you understand that just because you feel like God is most distant, that doesn't mean he is. It's possible that your feelings are lying to you. My friends, do you understand? Do you know? Do you believe? Do you trust that going to the hard places of grief and lament and sadness is not going to be your undoing? You are not a bad Christian if you go to these places and cry out in grief and pain. You are not failing in your faith if you are saying in these moments, God, I'm sad. There is no heavenly scorekeeper saying, but look at all the blessings. What about those? That's not God. And friends, if that's you and I going to other people and saying you shouldn't be sad because look at X, Y, and Z, stop it. Just because tears are happening doesn't mean faith is broken. Life is complicated and we have joy and sorrow sometimes in the same thread, sometimes in the same day. And we need to be able to be honest about all of our fears and all of our feelings. Because God has sought us and saved us and rescued us and redeemed us and taken the blows for us and was forsaken for us so that we might be forgiven. The shield about you is Jesus. And in his arms, there is mercy and grace and forgiveness forevermore. Thanks be to God.